Hello and welcome to Dungeon Talk, the general advice and discussion podcast from D&D Academy. I am Michael and this is Dungeon Talk episode number 43, NPC Energy. In this episode, Caleb and I are joined by friend of the show, Chris from NPC Cast, which is one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to uh, every week. And we do a synergy session, which if you've been listening for a while, you kind of know how this works. We had a pack of Magic the Gathering cards, uh, the Born of the Gods block set, I guess what it's called, that we use to come up with our ideas for games. Chris went pretty tight. He had like a two to three session long adventure that used the cards very well. He, he really focused in a lot on some of the flavor text, which I'll be honest is something I haven't really... I uh, looked at that much on those. I mean, usually me, it's more the title and the artwork. He went into the flavor text. He also did something that Caleb and I never do, which is research. And uh, he he knew a little a lot more about the magic mythos than, than I do. And uh, he was able actually knew what some of the card titles meant. And that really helped him create what I thought was a very solid two to three session game that I would love to play in. Caleb went really big picture and pretty much laid out an entire campaign arc starting from villagers up to fighting off Phoenix, God of uh, Deception. And I went somewhere in the middle. I went for what I would was aiming for to be a six to eight session adventure, which would be part of probably a larger ongoing campaign. But each of us took the cards in vastly different ways. And uh, I think this does just show the strength of, of what we do with our synergy sessions because we had the same cards, we each approached it three different ways, and I think all three of us came up with a very solid and very viable game encounter campaign arc that we could use. I'd love for someone at home listening maybe to use it, how it worked out. Now, one of the things that happened during this conversation is Chris and I really kind of started geeking out together over podcasting. He and I are in a pretty small brotherhood at this point of podcasters. So uh, we kind of got off track a little bit and we're just talking about some of the heartaches and um, headaches that come with this hobby that we love so much that we'll spend time doing this. Poor Caleb had to sit around and listen to us geek out for a while. So I had to cut a lot of that out. Positive note, I also completely spoiled Captain America 2. Uh, so fortunately, the spoiler was cut out, but uh, you'll hear us kind of laughing about it at the end when we come back because I, I completely ruined the movie. Sorry, Caleb. But for those of you who've listened to this who haven't watched the movie yet, I have saved you from that spoiler. The only thing I will say is it was pretty freaking awesome. So because we did talk about geeky stuff for so long, we ran long in our conversation and we weren't able to get to two synergy submissions that were sent in by friends of the show, Matt Parody, who you will be able to hear soon. Uh, he's going to be a player in the new game that I'm starting and that one GM, also known as Andrew, both of them send in synergy submissions based off of the cards. Because I did so much editing, I now have a little bit of room, so I'm going to add those in kind of at the end of the conversation that Chris, Caleb, and I had. There'll be a short transition, and then I'm going to read the ones that they submitted. They will also be copied onto the website, so you can go back and read them. No new reviews on iTunes, no new reviews on Stitcher. Would love to have a new one come up so I could read it. Pretty excited about that. If you know anybody out there, we're, we pretty much doubled the number of listeners that we have on Stitcher just within the last couple of weeks. It, it's jumped pretty significantly. So I know there's people out there listening on Stitcher. Somebody go write us a review, please. iTunes, obviously, that's probably one of the, the most common ways that people will find us. But the thing that continues to drive our traffic more than anything else, at least that I can see, is RPGpodcast.com. We have dominated the leaderboard over the last few weeks. We've we've jumped all the way up into a solid third place, and it's going to be a while before we take out second, and I don't know that we'll ever get to first, but we could if 30 people that are listening to this episode go right now to rpgpodcast.com, search for our show. It's D ampersand D Space Academy. You can like or recommend our 10 most recent episodes. That'll jump us 300 spots and get us ever closer to that elusive number two. But I'm also very excited if you look on the left side of the RPG podcast homepage, there's a leaderboard. We have all five spots. So our shows right now are being recommended more than pretty much anything else on there. And I can't thank you guys enough for that. So if you are one of the few that is doing that for us, thank you so much. If you have not yet done that, 
please consider taking a couple minutes, going to the website and recommending, if not the last 10 shows, maybe you don't feel the last 10 shows deserve a recommendation. Maybe only this one does, because this is a great episode, then please recommend that one. I think that's pretty much it. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. And once again, a big uh, thank you to Chris from NPC Cast. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as, as I did. And it is Captain America spoiler free. So here is Dungeon Talk episode number 43, NPC Energy. I did want to talk a little bit about 13th Age, and part of that was, again, just to kind of get us talking. And uh, Caleb is getting ready to start playing in a game that I'm going to run that's in 13th Age. He's had no experience other than reading the book, preparing for his character. So I thought I'd start with you, Caleb. Do you have any thoughts about the system, you know, things that struck you as, wow, that was really cool, or I don't see that working? Honestly, I'm a big fan of the system just from reading through the book. I, I like that it is... A, still a great, simple D20 core system. I like that it is a mashup, so to speak, of some of the best bits from 4th edition and some of the best bits from 3rd, 3.5, Pathfinder, whatever uh, core you want to claim from that era of gaming. Um, I like some of the twists they put on it, how uh, everyone tends to be a little bit more powerful and a little bit more sturdy. Um, and I like some of the mechanics, uh, some of the little crunchy bits of how the monsters and the mooks run are very simple and very intuitive. Um, I've stolen, or borrowed, let's say, uh, a few little bits and pieces. I like the background. I love the one unique thing. And I actually was lucky enough to start running my own campaign with my friends up here in Canton, and I uh, have implemented a lot of those ideas already. So I'm a big fan. So what about you, Chris? I know you said you've had a little bit of interaction with the system. Have you played it at all, or is it just like reading through the book? Well, I mean, we were really excited about getting the books and reading through them, and so we picked them up as soon as they came out and sort of poured over them. At the time, uh, I was in a weekly group, and we were running a, a Pathfinder campaign. Uh, my friend NPC Aaron was running that for us, and we sort of chose Pathfinder um, a little bit arbitrarily. We just decided we were going to give it a shot and, and actually make, make a go at it. And we ended up switching over to 13th Age uh, partway through because we wanted to try some of the cool mechanics and stuff from that. Um, that said, one of the awesome things about 13th Age is the icon relationships, and that's like one of the, the big, I think, selling points for the game, which we didn't really have in our setting. So I don't think I don't think we were playing with the full 13th Age experience, although the elements that we did incorporate uh, were generally well-received by our group. Yeah, I, absolutely. The, the two things that I like most about the system, uh, and there's actually a lot I like about it, but one is backgrounds. I stole that already I'm in the D&D Next game that we were playing for a while. We we switched and just started using backgrounds anyways because I, I think they were so great. And the other thing was icon relationships. And that was the one thing that kind of scared me about starting a 13th Age game because I often run in my own settings. And I really didn't want to put the work in trying to redefine all the icons in a homebrew, homebrew setting. That was a little bit intimidating for me. So this 13th Age game that I'm about to run, I'm just going to run it in the standard setting to kind of get my feet wet, but eventually I would like to go back and, and do that in my own homebrew setting. So I love that mechanic, but I think it's intimidating to, to try to think about do your own. You know, if you're starting your own campaign, do you do 13 or do you do 12 or do you do two? You know, I guess it kind of depends on the setting, but that's a lot of work to do up front that, that may never even come into the game. Right, and I think that that's sort of, to me, that's, that's the biggest, uh, I guess knock against 13th age is I think 13th age is very tightly designed and it's and it works best when you're running it 
out of the book with the setting that's included. And you can sort of make up your own icons and stuff, but the game sort of presumes that you're going to use all the pieces of it. Um, and so while it's it's easy to take you know, certain things like the idea of escalation dice or the idea of the, the background system or the skill system, which is I really, really enjoy. The skill system feels a lot like it's just ripped directly from fate, basically. It's easy to take those things and add them to a, to a D&D campaign, but it's a little bit harder to play 13th Age without using all of the pieces that it gives you. So I, I think that I'm starting a, a new fantasy campaign uh, pretty soon, and one of the options that I'm going to give my players is 13th Age. Um, the only thing I really know about the campaign is that they want to play a fantasy campaign, high fantasy. And so I'm going to offer up the 13th Age, you know, the, the entire entree of 13th Age to them and see if they want to do that, in which case we will be playing basically out of the out of the book. So one of the things I did kind of consider that I was going to do in a campaign that never quite panned out was to use a version of the icons. I wanted to make it a very political game where there were a lot of uh, noble factions in a city and do it sort of similar to that where you'd have two or three opposing houses, maybe like a Game of Thrones type thing, where you would have icon relationships with House Stark versus House uh, Greyjoy, that type of thing. But again, it never quite panned out. But I could see you taking icons from 13th Age and use them in other games, just like a regular D&D, on a slightly different scale. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, they sort of they give you the uh, the the basic and, and and they're almost they're sort of the classic tropes that you have in the icons in Thirteenth Age. But the the system itself of of how the, you form the relationship and how those impact the story and your characters' interactions with NPCs and with each other, I think can easily be adapted to a, a different game. I think that Thirteenth Age might be a little bit difficult to run or. I, I wouldn't say difficult, but it's it's not necessarily designed for the, the the like the super political game that you know a Game of Thrones campaign may be. But there's definitely elements of that there. It's it's really cool. I mean, if people haven't had a chance to check out the Thirteenth Age book, I would definitely check it out. I mean, the book is awesome. It's really interesting to see how Heinsu and uh, Jonathan Tweet sort of have their little asides in the book and they tell you from their perspective because they come at it from two very different angles, you know, design wise. And they actually will, you know, tell you the port, the points during the, the game, sort of the mechanic points where they disagreed and they'll tell you why. And so it's, it's really, it's a really interesting look into the behind the scenes portion that I think can help, uh, you know, new DMs out to see sort of what things that these designers were thinking about when they made the mechanics the way they did. One of the things I thought was interesting about that, too, is, again, you guys have done a lot of show on your podcast, NPC Cast, where you talk about designing games and playtesting games and, and, uh, and that type of thing that we don't really cover here at the Indie Academy. So it was very interesting, even though I'm not really into the game design aspect, it was just interesting to see the two different viewpoints. But what I did like about it was that even though they didn't agree, they still produced the book mm -hmm. like it still came out. So I just think, you know, if you are collaborating with someone, you don't have to agree on every single rule. At some point, you just say, let's put it out there. People will use it how they want to, but let's give our kind of side opinion. So I, I was kind of fascinated by it, and that was one of my favorite things was just to go through and read those little subsections as I went through. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but Caleb, so you said that are, are you running or you're starting up a, a 13th Age campaign for your playgroup at home, correct? Yes and no. Uh, <laughs> I am using Pathfinder as a core, mm -hmm. and then I cherry-picked some of the 13th Age rules, specifically yep. some of the background rules and uh, some of the one unique thing rules. I'm using it more for flavor than mechanics. To be honest, I'm trying to use it to push my players to role-play a little more. Because my group... We have a lot of fun, but we are much more combat-oriented, mechanically-oriented, and we haven't gotten to play in months, if not years, and I figured, you know what, we're actually going to sit down and play. Let's try to baby-step in a little bit of mechanically-oriented bonus to role-playing. Mm -hmm. And it's working out so far. Uh, we had our first session today for about four or five hours, it worked really well. Uh, everyone was pretty happy with it. I had to kind of beat the one unique thing into their understanding, but once we got that clear, it worked out really nice. 
So one of the things about the Escalation die is it feels to me like there should be a damage bonus associated with it. But in 13th Age, where you start with so many hit points, it, that would be, I don't know if it would be enough to make an effect, especially at higher levels. But I think if you were to steal that Escalation die to put it in a Pathfinder game or a D&D straight game, that a damage associated with the Escalation die would be significant. So are you going to talk about doing that at all, Caleb, or is it just straight to hit? I probably am not going to use the Escalation die concept simply because the dynamic of my group up here gets kind of chaotic with people wandering off and not paying attention, and it's hard enough to corral everyone at the table, let alone remind them, hey, it's Escalation 2. If you don't do anything, you lose Escalation. Plus, my guys tend to min-max a little bit, so they're fine for attacks. Which, true, if, if you are also playing more of a Pathfinder crunchy game, because my understanding of the Escalation die is it's sort of a, a metaphysical way to represent all the little bonuses that you would accrue over time, getting in the right position, finding out what damage types are best against certain monsters. If you're giving them those actual bonuses and then adding the Escalation die on top, you are kind of double dipping on that. A little bit, yeah. When uh, <laughs> when my my fighter is just cleaving an entire room of goblins, he doesn't need help. Gotcha. Which you also said you guys usually play at higher levels. I'm you know I'm notorious for starting my characters off at zero level or first level. God forbid. Uh, hey, what level are you guys starting at? We started at five, and I had to lay the GM hammer down that, no, we are starting at 5. they want to start higher? Yeah. Um, they tend to... Well, since we can usually only play one or two games and not complete an entire session, um, entire campaign, mm-hmm. they usually like to jump into a 13 to 17 range because it's probably going to just be a one-shot. And I think that's kind of a double-edged sword there. When you make a character like that, it's much, much harder to actually keep a campaign going, even if you have the time. So I, le- I gave everyone level 5 so that they could have some meat on their bones and actually do um, hit that level 5 sweet spot that the old D20 systems had. And uh, a couple <laughs> when we first started talking about it through Facebook, I got at least two or three different messages that were, hey, how about level 7? Or, hey, <laughs> how about level 8? And I was like, no, guys, for real, level 5, or there's going to be some rocks falling from the heavens here. So Nice. But everyone's really into their character. We had some great role-playing moments. And we're only one session in. We barely did anything. But we had a lot of fun. Thank you guys both for kind of sharing. Again, I'm a huge fan of 13th Age, and that's why I'm excited to start playing it. But the reason that we gathered here virtually tonight was to talk about uh, Synergy. We, um, again, for those of you who are not familiar, Synergy is a way for new DMs who maybe are put on the spot pretty suddenly or are just struggling to find a game they want to run, an adventure, an encounter, a campaign, and they just don't have a lot of inspiration or, or a lot of time. And so we came up with the idea of grabbing a pack of magic cards, cracking them open, and just using the card names, the powers on them, the artwork, whatever strikes your fancy to sort of inspire your game. We've done this a few times before, and I've varying success, but overall I think it's a very positive thing. And um, we had two submissions that came in through either Facebook or um, basically online uh, from Matt and from Andrew, also known as That One GM. Because there's three of us tonight with Chris guesting on the show, I don't know if we're going to include those two. We may just post them on the website. depends on time. Uh, So, Caleb, since uh, Chris and I dominated the 13th Age conversation, how about you start off with your synergy for tonight? Okay. I will preemptively state and warn everyone that... As I tend to do, I started to ramble a little bit. I aimed this synergy towards uh, an entire campaign. So my outline here, which is more prose, as I tend to do when I ramble, kind of outlines the entire story from start to finish. So here we go. Uh, This campaign takes place on a large island nation. The population is split into two tribes, those who follow the Nyxborn Eidolon, and those following the Flitterstep Eidolon. The tribes are not at war, but they do differ on philosophical and religious principles. 
The Nyxborn people tend to be more combative and confrontational as they are led by an aspect of the Eidolon, the Nyxborn shieldmate. Uh, the Flitterstep people are much more studious and calm. They do not have a direct leader, but instead commune with their Eidolon via meditation and magical divination. One day, a storm whips up suddenly. It is the most violent storm the island has ever seen. It lasts for weeks, uh, destroying virtually everything. Uh, when the storm finally settles, the survivors gather together and fear that they are caught in the eye of the storm and they choose a small party of people from both tribes to ascend the holy mountain of Melitus to seek out any surviving members of the astronomers that live there to see what these people can find out. This party is the group of uh, PCs. Uh, the PCs set off on their journey. They must travel across the island to get to the mountain. Uh, there is a chance during this first leg of their journey that they will encounter the Great Heart a being who embodies the spirit of nature. If the PCs play their cards right, they can win uh, favor and boons from the Great Heart to aid in their travels. Uh, the PCs will eventually re reach the mountain, climb to find the surviving astronomers. Uh, they have some little side quests and mini quests to gather the equipment the astronomers need to repair uh, their devices that they use to inspect the heavens. When they finally complete that, they find that a giant meteor is heading straight through uh, the atmosphere towards the island. They rush back home to try to warn the people, but the meteor strikes just offshore, causing huge earthquakes. Uh, as this new round of destruction subsides, the meteor actually cracks open, revealing a massive temple from within. In this temple is Phanax, the god of deception. He was banished from the realm eons ago, but has gathered enough evil energy to return and start his reign of terror anew. Phoenix sends some of his demonic troops to destroy the island as a bit of a warm-up, and then sets off to conquer the rest of the world. Uh, at this point in the campaign, the PCs can take on uh, more of a the task of being generals in the army and leading and directing the island's uh, remaining forces to fight these invaders. Uh, it would be a long battle, but they'd eventually triumph. During the course of the battle, they would end up underground in some of the ruins created by the earthquakes, and here they would discover the Retraction Helix, which is an ancient artifact. They would also find some evidence that the artifact had been used once in the past to banish Phoenix, but there's no instructions on its use. The elders of the tribe can uh, unite their powers in one massive divination spell and learn that there is a remaining ancient of their tribe and he's living somewhere else in the world. This ancient knows how to use the artifact, but the PCs have to go find him. This ancient is the satyr who's been called Windfinder. So the PCs have to set off uh, to find this guy. As they are leaving the island, they end up in another place where Phanax's troops haven't really hit yet. Uh, this is a, a continent flush with animal life and primal energy. The PCs are going to seek for the Windfinder here, but first they run into a group of Fairies Band raiders. Uh, these are human hunters who are out seeking the greatest trophy. They're not necessarily antagonistic, but they're not necessarily friendly either. Um, if the PCs want to, they can poke around a little bit, and eventually they would realize that these raiders are capturing unique animals to put into unfair gladiator-style games, just so the raiders can enjoy killing them for trophies. And if the PCs search a little bit further, they can find that one of these animals is the Great Heart that they had uh, encountered earlier. If they continue to fight to free the animals, the Heart will actually give the PCs new powers. Those from the Nyxborn tribe would learn the aspect of the Hydra, which is a new combat style, and those from the Flitterstep tribe would learn deep water hypnosis, which is a meditation style that allows them to control their foes. Once that part is done, it's kind of an optional quest, but if that gets completed or not, uh, the PCs would go on to find the Windfinder. They would eventually locate him. He would teach them the ritual to open up uh, the Helix artifact. Uh, they would return home, complete the ritual, and the Helix artifact would cast out a bolt of Karanos. 
this would summon Keranos, which is an ultimate uh, divine being that all the other Eidolons came from. Uh, he would lead his armies against Phoenix, but he would also tell the PCs that they have to take the artifact into Phoenix's throne room to defeat him. So the PCs would set out on another epic adventure to fight their way through the temple to eventually face down Phoenix and hopefully win. That is a whole campaign. <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. The the bad habit I have is when I start jotting down notes for a uh, for an outline, I tend to just get wrapped up in it and going and going and going. So I think a couple good ideas came out of that, though. Yeah, I love the idea how uh, they they start off as as you know the PCs can be one of two factions. They can either be sort of followers of was it Nixborn, and then followers of the the Flitterstep Eidolon, right? Those are the yeah. Yeah, and so it's like, you know, they can sort of begin to forge their relationship throughout the entire thing and then realize that they have to unite against a, a common foe. I think that's a, a nice, like, fantasy trope that uh, is ripe for the pickings. Yeah, well, I was, think, I was thinking um, usually when players are making PCs, they tend to just make them very generic and fit them into the world. Uh, if we were running this campaign and we would say, in addition to making your player or making your character... You need to choose uh, where you came from and whether there was actually some uh, mechanical aspect of that. We gave them certain skill bonuses or certain attacks or said you can only do certain classes if you're from this certain tribe. It would help them flesh out their character a little bit and maybe make some better role-playing elements uh, when these two tribes would come together to unite for the common goal. Mm. Now, so early on in that, because obviously there were, there were two or three different phases of that, I would say. So what do you see as being the, the main opposition early on? Is it environmental? Because the, there's the climbing of the mountain, there's dealing with the storm and the earthquakes and tsunamis, or are there like NPC bad guys that you just didn't really throw in details of that would be opposing the characters early? It would really just be environmental. And I know I can go into those details, but when the PCs would first set off on their journey to the mountain, that would all be uh, dealing with man versus nature, you know, getting through the areas the storm had destroyed, exploring through that jungle, finding a new path up to the mountain. I envision that being more when and if there is combat, it might be against some sort of creature or beast that has been uprooted from the storm, might be acting out or against its normal um, normal instincts because the storm has rattled it so much. So more natural danger than someone directly opposing them to stop them. Well, if you do have a, a group that you know is very combat focused, it wouldn't be hard to add in some agents of Phoenix, maybe people cult that was still on the world that were actively working to bring him here. And um, and for whatever reason they're opposing you, that would be you know someone you could probably throw in that would make a lot of sense. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, I mean, I really like that, and I, and I think that the the cool thing is that the type of opposition that you're you're facing, you know, throughout the the several arcs that you sort of described, get more intense as it goes on. So, you know, in the in the beginning, a lot of those those conflicts and the things that they're trying to overcome are maybe their own differences. You know, maybe perhaps there's a a village or or a on on some riverbanks, and it has been you know incredibly you know ravaged by the storm. And so it's left to the, the PCs. I mean, are we going to help them? Are we going to take time from our, you know, from our important quest to to assist these people who who need our help, or are we going to continue on and sort of forget about them? It leaves some kind of cool dilemmas and cool inner inner party stuff, and then eventually they have to, like I said before, you know, cast their differences aside and then take on the evil that sort of brings them together. As all good evil does. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's the only purpose of evil is to bring heroes together, actually. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Caleb, I thought that was a fantastic uh, example. And again, I already love the fact that yours is very different from mine and it's very different from the other two that we got, which, again, I think just kind of shows the strength of this little game system we do here where you, you know, crack a pack of cards and create an adventure. So, Chris, I'll let you choose. Would you like to go next or do you want me to go next? Uh, sure. I can I can go next. Uh, a couple of things about mine. I, I see this as maybe maybe two sessions. 
and I think it's part of a, of a larger campaign, although at the end you can sort of imagine that this is maybe the beginning of a campaign and, and there's other things that, that are hinted at. Uh, I did, you know, combine sort of the, the cards themselves and then I also did some research as to, you know, what the cards mean, like, for example, what Nyx is, what Melitus is, and all that kind of stuff in the the magic framework, although this doesn't necessarily take place on, on Theros. So, basically, the my element starts off, you are in Melitus, which is a city-state on the coast of the Siren Sea, and the PCs somehow meet an astronomer. Now, I'm thinking maybe perhaps he's being laughed out of the town square, you know, he's... He's being ridiculed, and it turns out that the reason uh, that he's being ridiculed is because he has this crazy idea. He explains to the PCs that there's the the existence of something called the Erebos, which is a powerful stone that is only created where the geometries of the worlds collapse. And through exhaustive research, he has pinpointed the location of the Erebos stone to an island far off the coast to the south. Uh, The island is called Ferris. So he would like the players to escort him there so he can conduct further research of the power that such a stone may possess. And that's the the sort of jumping off point to the, the rest of the adventure. So the players hopefully agree to go with this, uh, this astronomer and, and seek out the Stone of Erebos. Now, while they're on the ship towards the island of Ferris, uh, they're beset by a sudden storm. And the sailors on the board warn that storms are often signals from the gods that they are unhappy with the current state of things. Uh, and just then they are attacked by merfolk. Now, I wrote this as sort of a, an encounter, and I just have some bullet points for the encounter. So depending on the, the system that you're in, you can kind of tailor this encounter to, uh, to what you want. But basically the merfolk attack the ship uh, during the storm. They've brought with them a many-headed sea monster, uh, who will basically be the, the quote-unquote boss for this encounter. Once it's slain, the merfolk will probably flee for their lives. Mechanically, the beast will continue to regenerate until all of its heads have been destroyed simultaneously, and so the players are going to be tasked to work together to achieve this. Of course, as the DM, you know, you don't have to tell them that. You're hinting at it, and hopefully they'll figure it out. Perhaps they've played a, an MMO or something. The other elements of the encounter are the fact that the merfolk have a number of deep-water hypnotists with them. Uh, The deep-water hypnotists will try to mind-control the players, and once they do so, they will move the players towards the edge of the ship and then leap into the water below, where they will most likely just be killed because they're drowning in stormy sea. Uh, The players can stop this by either getting to the mind-controlled characters and, and knocking them to their senses, or by dispatching the hypnotists themselves. Of course, as the Militian proverb goes, watch the waves too long and you may never look away. Of course, the storm is going to be going on as well, so movement is going to be sort of difficult in this particular encounter, and then and at worst, uh, it's going to be very dangerous as you get towards the edge of the ship and, and things get really hectic. And then once the encounter is over, the storm quickly subsides, and then in the distance, they see Ferris. Depending on the pacing, depending on the system that you're using, I could see that being sort of one game session as its own, and then we get to the next portion. So eventually, the, the PCs will make landfall on the island of Ferris. They begin to, to make their way following the map that the astronomer is navigating them through. Initially, they're unable to locate any of the landmarks described, but they encounter a satyr wayfinder who offers to help them in exchange for for booze that the players might have or some other favors uh, if they don't have booze with them. If they accept his help, he, of course, leads them into an ambush of centaur raiders because satyrs are not very trustworthy, in which case the centaur raiders that are besetting the players will have a symbol on them that matches the constellation. This can either be a tattoo or a medallion that matches a constellation that is shown on the map that the astronomer has has shown them. Uh, once they're defeated, if they have followed the satyr, he will again hop, offer to help them, uh, this time sincerely, or of course they can just sort of track the, the raiders back to where they came from. Of course, if the players decline the satyr's help initially, they don't trust him, he will end up following them and lead the raiders, the centaur raiders, to them. So either way, there's going to be an encounter with the centaur raiders. Eventually, after that encounter, they make their way to the temple, and there's a large chamber 
in in the temple that's lit by mirrors reflecting the light from outside, reflecting it through shafts, and then you know lighting up the inside of this large temple. And the chamber is made up of four large raised stone circular platforms. Uh, three of them overlap in a similar way to uh, think of how a Venn diagram kind of overlaps. And there's one that's sort of offset to the side, but still overlapping one of the other uh, platforms. So across these platforms are five pedestals carved out of black stone, and they happen to also be arrayed in the same pattern as the constellation that the astronomer sort of highlighted on their map. And then atop the center pedestal, there is a large crystal, which apparently is the Erebos stone. Uh, the astronomer approaches the crystal, and he utters the words, Bodies returned, souls still lost. He then twists the crystal and he removes it from the pedestal, and you can see that the, the stone is actually attached to a long metal helix, sort of like a screw holding it in, in the stone. Uh, once the, the crystal is removed, the platforms sort of shake, vibrate, and begin to move apart and rotate. At the same time, there is an opening in the center of the room. Uh, it's basically a, a portal that is revealed where spirits from the underworld will begin to flood into the room and escape. And this leads to sort of the penultimate encounter where the elements are you have platforms that rise up about 40 feet from the floor of the temple below. They've sort of separated, so they vary in distance and height in relation to each other. You can move from platform to platform, but it should be somewhat difficult. And basically it's a timing puzzle uh, the players need to retrieve the helix from the astronomer, who turns out to actually be a priest of Finax, the god of deception, uh, who is closely related to the god of the underworld himself. And once they retrieve the helix, they have to place it back into the column it was in at the precise moment the wheels are once again aligned. Uh, if they miss their first chance, they have to basically survive another wave of spirits until they're either destroyed or the players die in, in a horrible total party kill. Uh, so the platforms sort of rotate at different speeds and it's like a puzzle to, to figure out when they're going to realign and, and time everything just right. Um, once they realign back to their initial uh, pattern, the stones will once again sort of converge for a few moments before separating again and, and rotating. The other thing is that while the spirits flood forth from the portal, uh, any PCs that get near the center will be targeted by whip-like tendrils of energy that will attempt to pull them in, because apparently in, in magic that's what the god Erebos actually does to people, which was really awesome. Uh, so they'll try to pull them into the underworld. The closer that the PCs get to the center of the room, the stronger the pull. Of course, so our, our players learn that they've been deceived by uh, Phanax, the god of deception, um, after the encounter, they learn that the Erebos Stone is indeed a powerful powerful artifact, uh, like it was told to them, um, so much so that it actually separates the energies of the Underworld uh, below and Nyx, which is uh, the sky, the, the basically the home of the gods, where the gods reside in the night sky. So this powerful artifact is the way for the energies to kind of converge as long as it is held in alignment and celestial alignment, um, and the players learn, either through the dying words of the uh, the priest or maybe by studying the, the runes in the temple or the, the hieroglyphs, that this is not the only Erebos stone, and in fact the other ones are in danger of um, also being stolen, thereby unleashing the spirits of the underworld into the sort of material realm. And that is what I came up with. So there you go. That is also very awesome. Uh, just listening to that, obviously you did some research into the the Magic the Gathering setting, the mythos that I, I haven't, but it sounds like there were a couple of cards that really were, that stood out to you, like the Helix, for example. I mean, you came up with a very complex puzzle trap around that. Was there something about that card or that artwork that really inspired you? Well, so... I work in a in a game store. We sell magic cards, and and so I know some of the the stories behind it. Like I knew what that Nyx is, sort of the 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 sky, and that's where the gods live, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but no, actually, the thing about the the retraction helix card that stood out to me was the flavor text. And the flavor text in the card says, "Where the geometries of the world collapse, a master of the aether can harvest power beyond comprehending." And then I look over here at this picture of the Miletus astronomer, and I'm like, well. 
probably knows where the geometries of the world would collapse. So, and that was kind of the the impetus of everything, and everything kind of fell into place from there. Just trying to figure out other ways uh, to sort of incorporate the cards. And and when when I thought about it, I, I it's it's very difficult for me to do what Caleb did and sort of plan out a whole uh, campaign. That's not a like a, a skill or a talent that that I have. So I was trying to think of it in in manageable chunks. And the way I kind of came about was you know, trying to think of encounter by encounter. And so I was like, okay, there should be sort of a beat here where there's a cool fight. Uh, you know, if this is a 4E campaign, you know, there'd be a really cool way to, you know, set up the the map and sort of really highlight some of the strengths of the system. And so I started just looking at pieces of the, the cards, you know, like the Sudden Storm, the island, it kind of made sense. Bringing in a deep water Hypnotist, I thought it was... Uh, and again, the flavor text from the deep water Hypnotist is watch the waves too long and you may never look away. I was like, well... It seems like there should be some sort of, you know, hypnotist sorcerer that's going to try to, you know, basically be a siren to the players and and just force them to, you know, kill themselves by jumping into the sea. Uh, but everything kind of just came from there. There was other elements I wanted to incorporate that I really didn't get a chance to. Um, like the the great heart is such a, a cool symbol, uh, but I never actually got around to using that. But overall, I think it kind of it it built itself pretty organically once I sort of connected the dots between the retraction helix and the astronomer himself. Very cool. Caleb, did you have any questions or thoughts? That is the type of encounter that I always try to create and always fail. Uh, I always dream about running an encounter that has that type of massive moving element, whether it's those platforms moving around or... Uh, some sort of interaction uh, that is between the the players and the environment in the game that's not just I walk up the mountain or walk into the cave. And I always, in my head, want to actually figure out some way to build something on the table to represent that. Uh, You know, the platforms that would be moving back and forth and actually let people play that with their minis. And I've just never been able to do it ever but that is exactly uh, an encounter that would fit perfectly for that. And whether you do it all theater of the mind or you're actually handy enough to make that uh, physically for your table minis, that's wonderful. And that's a, those are a couple really great, very solid uh, game sessions there. I would definitely want to play both of those. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely on that. And we've we've discussed on here before some of the difficulty in those types of encounters with like the moving platforms, it's a very cool idea, but sometimes it doesn't translate well to the table. If, if you don't have a solid plan in place on how you're going to make that work. Um, mm-hmm. I don't use maps generally in my game. I'm pretty much theater of the mind, but that's the type of encounter that I would want to construct something, whether it just be, you know, dice cases or even like toilet paper rolls with something over them. So I could have different heights, uh, but I could definitely, Caleb, I agree, that would be a very fun encounter to play out if you could run it right. Absolutely. That was awesome. Yeah. Well, f- well thank you, first of all. I mean, I, I think the, the last encounter to me is a sort of, it seemed, uh, again, and it seemed like that sort of MMO type of encounter that I don't mind cribbing from if I have to, uh, to kind of give give that cool feeling to the fights. Uh, but when I was writing this, I was like, actually, I, I actually Googled various terms to try to figure out like mathematically how those types of circle platforms would work and I was like I don't really know if that would work but in my head I was like you know what just some circle platforms they spin maybe you would get a couple paper plates and sort of use those throughout the table to to represent them but it's difficult I mean I I think that the key to me is is and and this is what how I try to think of encounters when I'm thinking of encounters for Dungeons and Dragons is a few interesting elements, and then kind of let, let the players interact with those things. Uh, so, you know, in, in the Merfolk encounter, it's like, okay, they have to synchronize their attacks so that they can, you know, kill every head of this, basically, Hydra simultaneously, although the thing that's getting in their way is that occasionally the players are being mind-controlled as well, so that's like a barrier for, for them achieving their goal. And then, you know, basically the, the, the stone platforms are just spinning in a way where... You know, if they don't achieve their goal at a precise moment, they have to basically wait another round for it to, or another few rounds for it to happen again. And 
you know, trying to give a, a very clear goal to the players and then putting one element in their way that's sort of foiling them is kind of how I try to think about it. But you also have to sometimes have player buy-in too. I mean, it, the way you run the encounter and the way that you interact with your players, you know, in your normal sessions will sort of dictate whether or not they're going to think that that's really cool or just really lame. I mean, you really, <laughs> you really have to sell it. You have to sell the idea to them. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. So I'll kind of jump to the end with you, Chris, since this is the first time you did that. Um, do you think this is a viable technique for a newer DM to do to, to get some inspiration? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that any time you, uh, you try to come up with something creative and you give yourself a restriction, I think you're going to lead into some really interesting ideas and, and ways of thinking that you wouldn't have, have thought of before. I mean, the fact that we're, you know, we have 15 cards, and I don't know about you guys, but I mean, you try to use as many of them as possible, and so it leads you to, to sort of leaps of logic and, and things that you wouldn't normally even consider because you have the restriction of, the, of just looking at the cards in front of you and using those. You mentioned our, our campaign crucibles. I mean, on NPC Cast, we do the sort of same thing, but we just each bring one ingredient uh, to the table and sort of spring them on each other, you know, right then and there, and then immediately just sort of improvise a setting based on those three elements. But you get the craziest combinations, and they also they they oftentimes lead to really really cool, unique ideas that you would have never came up with just out of the ether. So I, I think any exercise where you can sort of give yourself a restriction and then try to come up with something creative within that framework is an awesome tool, and it's definitely something that. DM should be doing just for fun. I mean, that's the type of thing where that's the fun part, you know, is putting putting this stuff together and coming up with something cool for your players to do. That's like the whole thing. That's what that's why we DM, right? Is there a reason why we DM? I sometimes try to figure that out. <laughs> if there is a reason, that's it. Because I can't think of many other <laughs> pluses to the fact that you have to do way more work than everyone else, and nice. they all hate you for it. So yeah, you pretty much. If you if you screw up one little <laughs> thing, you're authors, Michael. Don't forget that. I'm sorry. It's because we're failed authors. That's oh, why that's we're, that's forget. right. Yeah, I want to be a writer. If you haven't heard that before, Chris. Wait, what? Um, when did this happen? <laughs> have I not mentioned that before? Oh, uh, no, so, so, me too. <laughs> when I came up with mine, I'll admit I was pretty impressed with myself. I was pretty happy. I thought this was pretty awesome. But after hearing both of yours, it, it may have humbled me a little bit. Uh, I still think it's good, but I, I don't know if it's awesome anymore. So mine kind of in the middle between you two i was thinking this would be about a six to eight session game with the potential there's a couple places where there's a potential for a side quest type of thing that might add a, a little bit on so this is more of like a long-term adventure or excuse me an adventure that would might fit into a long-term campaign so basically what i came up with is that in this somewhat remote area there's a city or a village that is having all of their fresh water has, is drying up. The wells are drying, the ponds, the streams. And if there is a river nearby, it's running much lower. It may work better just to not have a river nearby. And it's beginning to damage the crops, and it's going to basically create a drought that could end up killing hundreds, if not thousands, of people from famine if it's not corrected. In addition to that, there have recently been a couple odd deaths around town where some powerful men, women, have been found dead, and it appears that they've drowned, but they're not anywhere near any sources of water. So the PCs could be brought in a couple different ways. One, they happen to be present when one of these water attacks happens. It's basically like a summoned water elemental that's uh, attacking and then drowning these, these victims. So it could be the uh, sort of the beginning, or excuse me, the ending of, an, of a different adventure. Maybe they're reporting back to the person who hired them and then that person is attacked. Could be a random encounter just walking around and it happens. But either way, they're present when an attack happens. They're there to foil it. And then, of course, the person who gets affected says, well, you know, will you please get to the bottom of this and find out who was trying to kill me? I would prefer if maybe the PCs were connected to the town, maybe through an NPC of a family member, friend, ally, contact type of thing. Uh, but either way, they get involved into the situation. Once involved, they learn that the uh, town council has hired an astrologer to uncover the mystery. And here's one of those points where it could get longer. Um, if you want a longer game, I would suggest that this astrologer is a charlatan that has to be debunked. So that might lead to a, a couple hours or a session where you investigate that Patrick Jane style from The Mentalist and figure out that he's a, a fraud. Uh, in the shorter game, he or she is right and points the PC in the right direction pretty quickly. Uh, what they will find out is that there is a dark power growing in a nearby haunted forest. 
and uh, he warns them not to go in unprepared, that they need to take a powerful magical item called the Bolt of Karenos. Again, in the shorter version, the town has this and bestows it to the PCs as a uh, boon. In a longer version, that's a side quest they have to go exploring and, and retrieve it. So once they decide to enter the haunted forest, they have to pass through like a, a, a rock wall that's been separating it off. Once they're inside, it's a very wild and overgrown area. Pretty much every animal inside is a dire version of itself or otherwise magically twisted uh, and monstrous. So plenty of opportunities for random encounters. Along the way, possibly while they're getting their asses handed to them by like a dire bear, a band of centaur warriors will come to their aid. I will note here that this, this is very Harry Potterish. Uh, but at the same time, those books mean billions of dollars to deal with it. The centaurs, <laughs> after they've kind of helped the PCs out, uh, relate that some of their elders have been attacked by these sudden storms, almost as if the water was alive trying to kill them, and they're going to kind of form a bit of an alliance. If the centaurs realize that the characters are carrying the bolt of Karenos, they will offer to help them, but only if they visit their elder first, Erebos. If the PCs agree, they'll travel to the centaur's village where they'll meet with Erebos, who claims that the Bolt of Karenos is his and that he would want it back. And if the PCs agree, he will aid them further. So if they say no, this will be a battle. Probably one of the more difficult battles, but not impossible. I don't want to just kill the PCs here. Uh, but Erebos will summon some creatures of the Dark Forest to help him, most notably a dire white stag. If the PCs fight and win, they get to keep their magic weapon, but they have to go on without aid, and this will prove to be later more difficult. Once they get to the center of the, or more to the center of the forest, there's additional barrier. This is one of shimmering light, and once they enter inside, there are actual ghosts and ghouls and other spectral creatures that they have to fight. If they do end up negotiating with the centaurs and give them the Bolt of Karinos, they will provide them with a satyr windfinder, or Wayfinder, who will guide them through that inner circle, and they will bypass any random encounters inside. And uh, Erebos will also gift them a ring of water breathing. Since they are being attacked by water, they assume this will continue, and they've made extras as precaution. Once they get to the very center of the Dark Forest, they will find a long-abandoned citadel that has fallen into ruins and has sunk in the water that used to surround it. Exploration of the Citadel finds nothing. Uh, eventually, they will realize they have to swim into the water. Once they do, they will find a, a, a water cave, and inside they find a merfolk sorcerer who they will very quickly, he will kind of explain to them that his homeland's water has become corrupted and polluted, and that he is using spells to move the fresh water from this place back to his homeland. So even though he has some kind of motivation for what he's doing, he's not willing to negotiate and he will attack them. And sort of the big boss battle here is it's a water elemental slash hydra. Once defeated, they will find that the merfolk creature has a sigil of insanity branded behind his ear. And a little research will show that he's pretty much crazy and that that wasn't happening. His homeland was not in danger and that the reason behind this ordeal can be explored in the next adventure. So that would pretty much solve that. And, and for me, the, the god of deception plays a part with the sigil of insanity, but he's not an active participant in this game. So that's kind of where that would end. The thing I, I like that you that you did about yours is making it sort of digestible in portions, and so it really I I like when you have sort of adventures that you can as a GM can sort of figure out how you want to pace them, you know if your players are having a really you know enjoyable time sort of investigating the the charlatan astrologer, then you can kind of go down that path. But if they're not, you can quickly cut that thread move on to, to something else. So I think that organizing it in a way where, where parts are somewhat interchangeable I think is, is really, really smart, and I think that's a, a thing that people should try to do more often. I've got to say, that seems like a little bit more of a combat-heavy game than I've seen you work on before. I like the fact, though, that you still put in a lot of those typical Michael elements of someone possibly being deceptive or uh, someone uh, doing something that would be otherwise betrayal-related. It, it makes for a lot of good role-playing elements and a lot of good character interaction beyond just survive the battle. And I think that's something that you do pretty well in your campaigns. You bring out that aspect uh, that other that other side of the role-playing game. So I like seeing those elements there, and I think you carried them out really well. Um, but I also like the fact that you had a lot of really good combat moments. 
and uh, whether they played out as big encounters or whether your players figured out some way to avoid them or outthink them, I like that you put them in there and presented them to the players. So, yeah, I'm down. I like it. Yeah, I, I think one of the cool things is uh, also that you, you gave some of the NPCs a little bit more meat to them, I guess. I think uh, I imagine the players, you know, when they go and encounter the the sorcerer, the merfolk sorcerer that, you know, for the for the first time, and you know, this sorcerer genuinely believes in what they're what you know they're doing, and and he's convincing the players. He's like, look, I'm doing this to to save my homeland. I mean, I imagine that initially, at least, there will be some some pause that, you know, are they really on the side of the righteous in in this case? I mean, is there something else going on that they're not seeing? Before, of course, they realize that it's Phoenix, the god of deception, all along, sort of pulling the uh, pulling the strings. But I like having elements like that. I like having those elements where where the PCs have to really think about their motivations for why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, it's it's the same thing I like uh, the same the same reason I like Caleb's idea where you know you have these these two factions coming together. It's, it really gives the PCs a chance to to look inside themselves and figure out what they want to do, how they want their characters to sort of propel forward. So I think I think that's really cool. Well, thank you, I, I appreciate that. And and that is one of the things that I I, I try to do in my games is I like to give a mo- uh, moral dilemmas. Like one of my favorite things as a DM is just to kind of lean back and let the players argue for 20 minutes because there isn't a clear black and white answer to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a pretty typical Michael move to give the main bad guy a somewhat sympathetic uh, motivation and then rip it away at the end and go, well, he was crazy and it wasn't actually true anyway. So that's a pretty typical Michael thing. Good. It's a good trick to have. It's a good (laughs) trick to have in your, uh, your, your pool. Yeah, just uh, don't overuse it. As we said, you know, if you do it to every every time, then you jade the players and they just start killing every NPC because <laughs> they assume that they're evil or crazy or both. Cool. So uh, we've got our three synergies here for you guys to run with. Uh, Mike is going to throw on uh, the website uh, some synergy submissions from Andrew, that one GM on Twitter, and Matt, Matt Parody on Twitter. Uh, so he'll post those. You can take a look. In general, we know you guys like synergy, so feel free to send in some cards for us to use or random ideas for us to play around with. And uh, whenever we do one of these synergies, we always like to hear from you guys. So throw in the comments uh, what you would do in a certain situation or how you would play something different. Uh, just so we can keep everything going, we love the conversations. Uh, a big thank you to Chris from NPC Cast for jumping on with us tonight. It was super fun, and uh, that's pretty much it until next time. <laughs> awesome, Chris! Again, thank you so much for joining us. I had a blast. Uh, again, I love your show. If you're not listening to NPC Cast, you should. But, but listen to us too. But but just add them onto your playlist as well. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. This was actually a lot of fun. We're going to go over the synergies that were sent in to us by Matthew Parody and by Andrew, that one GM. And I will try to read them with a little bit of flair as best I can. So I'm going to start with Matthew's. The humans of a great walled city of Theriad have grown lazy and godless. They rule about their vast island kingdom and care only for themselves. Suddenly, a bolt of Karenos comes from the heavens. It destroys a piece of their walls. A warning has been given but it is not heeded. The merfolk fret for the humans. So a great wizard, a deep water hypnotist, is called to help rein in the humans' hubris. A great and sudden storm is called up from the seas to wash away the humans, or at least some of them, to ease them back into the right way of things. But the walls are too great. Alas, it fails and only the Minotaur tribe is punished with watery graves. With the Minotaurs decimated, the Centaurs see the signs that the gods are giving. A great heart has told them that God's fury is coming, and the only safety is within the walls of Theriad. So they begin to attack the humans laying siege to the city. The satyrs also sense the impending doom, and the smartest of their kind, a satyr wayfinder, sneaks into the city with gifts for the doomed ones. He carries the claim of Erebos and the aspect of Hydra. These are greedily taken from the wise satyr, but his words of warning are not. Finally, 
A Miletus astronomer from within Theriad sees something gathering in the stars. With the centaurs almost broken, the humans gaze up at the evidence of a retraction helix growing in the sky. The night is filled with a rain of Edelons, Flitterstep, Nyxborn, and Shieldmate. The humans take up arms against this new and growing foe. The humans look for help in the merfolk, the centaurs, the minotaurs, and the satyrs. But when you're a human in this city, help is hard to come by. Their great heroes wield the weapons gifted to them by the Wayfinder. Suddenly the helix is open enough and then Phoenix, god of deception himself, sets upon the island his gaze. So basically what Matt's come up with here is that there is a walled city ruled by humans surrounded by these demi-humans that have grown um, lazy and godless. And uh, Phoenix has decided to slap them back into shape. They ignore his earlier warnings and um, pretty much piss him off. So what I like about what Matthew's done there is, you know, he wrote it pretty bullet for me. And I think that's because one of the last ones of these we did, we got some feedback that they took too long. So I appreciate him listening to that feedback for us as well and trying to speed things up a little bit. But there's a lot of meat in there for a political game because you have the merfolk who are trying to help the humans, the minotaurs who are trying to attack and get in, the satyrs who are trying to sneak their way in. Um, I think he also mentioned there's another race in there. So you could have a really cool political game that is the danger around them is more like looming, but the immediacy is how are these different races working together? I could I would love to see a party made up of different races, not just all the humans that are working together. I think that could be a fantastic game right there. And Matt, great job, and thank you for submitting that. All right, so Andrews is probably going to be a little bit more difficult to read just because of the way he did it. Um, so again, this will be on the, the website you get, so you guys can see it for yourself. But So basically what Andrew did is he gave me like a one paragraph pitch that you would maybe come to your players with. And then he listed out uh, the rest were in bullet points, which would be how certain cards would be used or what they mean, or in a lot of cases, the NPCs that would be involved. So here's the pitch that um, Andrew submitted. PCs are sent to the Isle de Lon to find the Great Heart and gain the blessings of Heliod for some endeavor, perhaps their own, or maybe for like a whole nation. They are shipwrecked and trapped there. They must avoid Idra and her centaur warriors while they search for the Great Heart. They discover that the only way off the island is to unite the separated and bitter members of the Circle of Five and open the Helix Stair, which will take the PCs home. Of course, Idra and the members of the Circle of Five might want to use the blessing of Heliod and the Helix Stair for their own purposes. And then he goes on to put, uh, you know, the Great Heart is a symbol of Heliod, which grants blessings. Uh, Idra is the human form of a powerful half-dragon Hydra who rules that island. There, the Circle of Five are made up of a merfolk illusionist, Karenos, a powerful warlock, Sobir, a hidden necromancer who lives on the island, the astronomer, and then uh, Nyxborn Edelon. I don't know if that's making a whole lot of sense to you guys, but when I read it, it's very cool. I like a lot of what he did. Again, similar to Matt's in a way is that you have the party now trapped on an island, and it's not just a let's kill everything until we're done. There is definitely some political machinations that are going on here. You also have this powerful Yidra, that's a, you know, basically a goddess that you need to keep her away from what you're doing because you getting off the island might open up the stairway for her or it to get off the island and do some bad things. So um, both Matthew and Andrew, I thought, did a fantastic job, and I wanted to make sure they got included uh, as much as I could. So that will wrap up this show. As always, thank you guys for listening. We are going to do another Synergy segment soon. I will be posting the cards on the website. This time I'm going uh, just core. I think the Born of the Gods and the Theros set have been fantastic, but they've also been very sort of Greek themed because that's sort of what the, the they were going for. And I want to I want to kind of open it up and make it a little bit more generic, leave it up for a little bit more room of interpretation. So uh, look for those cards to be coming out soon on on Facebook. If you are on Facebook and you haven't liked us yet, please do. And uh, again, always consider following us on Twitter. It's at D and D underscore Academy. In continued honor of having NPC Chris from the NPC cast on our show, I'm going to steal one of their segments this week, and I'm going to have a What I Am Excited About segment. And I'm going to do that right now. If you listen to their show, you get that. If not, sorry. 
But anyway, there is a Kickstarter that I uh, would like for you guys, if you are so inclined, to check out. And if you have the, the spare coins, throw them a couple bucks. If you can't, I completely understand. But you know, if you could just tweet about it, if you could put it on your Facebook page, if you could just email about it, anything you can do to help them out, I'd appreciate it. The reason that I'm doing this, because as far as I know, this is the first time we've ever done this on the show. It's a movie called Autumn Moon, and it is billed as a old school kick-ass werewolf movie. They promise that it will be the bloodiest werewolf movie ever made. And it was written by a friend of mine, uh, Michael Spivey, a high school chum. He, uh, I think he at least has co-writing credits on the, uh, on the script for Autumn Moon. And there's a Kickstarter just started. It's got a ways to go. So anything you can throw their way, whether it be some money or just some love, would be greatly appreciated. So if you are a fan of horror movies or specifically werewolf movies, please take a minute, check them out, see if it's something you'd be interested in. And uh, if you can, tell them Michael from D&D Academy sent you. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time. at our website, dndacademy.com. You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>